Plus, David, uh, Dave, David, Dave said, <laughs> that's very formal, uh, Dave said we're going to be looking at some of these paradoxes uh, that we find coming up uh, through the Bible. And the question that we've got this morning is why is it that the God who needs nothing seems to ask for everything? How is it that the God who needs nothing seems to ask for everything? Now, I've known Jane for many years now, uh, and she's someone important in my life. As a young couple, Jane and her husband, uh, they had a good, a good life. Uh, they got to the point where they gave up a good, well-paid job uh, to serve God as church youth workers. And this was in a time before church youth workers really got paid uh, properly. They probably got about £2.50 in a packet of crisps. But anyway, they'd given up their time and they gave up their gifts to the ministry that God had called them to. And even though Jane had felt called to preach and to lead in church leadership since, the, uh, since she was about 16 years old, the church that they ended up working at uh, didn't recognize that women could be church leaders and preach. Uh, and so during the eight years that her and her husband were serving in this particular church, she put her calling on the back burner and focused on the particular Christian ministry uh, that God had called her and her husband to, uh, to the young people in the church. Eventually, Jane's husband uh, felt called uh, to a new job in a new town, uh, and they were there for, for some time, and things were good in lots of ways. And after five years, one day, Jane came home uh, to find that her husband had left her and, uh, and left their children and run off with her best friend. She was, as you can imagine, completely devastated. And I remember her that night as her whole world seemed to have fallen apart. Uh, she had three children to look after, no income. She was a stay-at-home mum, uh, but she was still determined. Uh, she was wrecked in many ways, but she was still strong because she knew that God had not abandoned her. Things got back on track a little, and I watched from the side as over the next four years, Jane struggled with something else. She eventually lost her adopted daughter to drugs and prostitution. She had loved that daughter as though she was her own blood. She had loved and cherished her for 15 years. And I saw the rejection and the pain and the grief and the loss that Jane was experiencing. And around the same time, Jane's dad also died after a long and difficult illness. But also during this time, Jane managed to look back at the calling she had felt when she was 16 years old. And eventually she was selected uh, for ordination and began training uh, to be a vicar at Theological College. And while she was training for ministry, she met a wonderful man uh, who was also training to be a vicar and they got engaged. And after the trauma of the previous uh, seven or eight years, everyone was just so delighted uh, for Jane. Here was somebody who she met who was kind and generous, who adored Jane, who just wanted to support her and allow her ministry to flourish. And they were married six months later and then got curacies in adjoining parishes as well, which we thought was very cute. Um, three years later, they were on holiday in the south of France and Jane's husband had a massive heart attack and died. And I had all my own feelings, all my own pain about these events. But I remember lying in bed on the night Jane's husband died, going over and over everything in my head until the early hours of the morning, just asking, how can this be happening to her? 
How can God seem to give so much and ask for so much back? How can she have gone through so much pain and trauma and it felt like she'd eventually received happiness and it was stripped away? And I know that was not just my reaction either. Jane had many friends and family who had known her all over those years of the mountaintop and valley experiences who, when they heard that her husband had died, just couldn't believe it. How could God be so cruel? How much loss could one person deal with when all she was trying to do was follow Jesus, to be a faithful disciple, to serve him, to share his love with others too? And it can seem like that, can't it? God has it all. He has the whole of creation, all goodness and all love. And yet, he gives us, uh, us of that love and that generosity abundantly. And yet, he seems to demand everything from us. Why would he do that? You might have had a similar experience to Jane or have come to a point in your life where you've asked similar questions. Maybe you've walked with somebody who's been on a journey of suffering. Because sometimes it can feel like God is behaving like someone who, who demands huge sacrifices and outrageous demonstrations of love. Or it can feel like God is testing us, stretching us to see how much loss and pain we can actually cope with. Or where it appears that God is just plain greedy. He already has all of creation and all power at his disposal. disposal. And yet from us humans, he asks us for the impossible. Why is it that the God who needs nothing asks for everything? And this question can lead us to question the very heart of who we think God is. We might think, I always thought that God was compassionate and loving. I always thought God was a provider. And yet it seems that because of this set of circumstances that I'm experiencing or observing in somebody else's life, that maybe I've got it wrong. And actually, God in his nature is jealous and greedy and demanding of everything good in our lives and is simply cruel in his actions. And so this is where this famous story of Abraham can help us. Abraham and Isaac can help us to explore this paradox. Why is it that the God who needs nothing asks for everything? You see, in Abraham, we meet someone who on the one hand has experienced the immense love and compassion and generosity of God. He's been told he will be the father of all nations. And yet, like my friend Jane, Here, God seems to be demanding everything good back off him. It's like a parent giving their child the birthday present that they've always longed for and then immediately demanding it back off them. You just wouldn't do that, would you? And so when we meet Abraham in Genesis 22, this is not Abraham's first encounter with God. His experience and knowledge of God has longevity and depth. And this is so important to know when we're trying to understand both God and Abraham's actions on Mount Moriah. So if we look back a bit, in Genesis 15, verse 5, Abraham receives this promise from God that he would have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And we find that Abraham believed the Lord. God and Abraham 
have a relationship. God has promised and Abraham believes. By chapter 16, 10 years have passed, but there are still no offspring. Abraham and Sarai begin to get a little nervous about what on earth's going on, so start to take things into their own hands and use Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, as a surrogate, and she bears a son, Ishmael. Again, when Abraham is 99 years old, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham by promising again that he will have many descendants and a promised land. And at this point is when God changes Abraham's name to Abraham. As it says in uh, chapter 17, verse 5, as I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Time and again in these earlier chapters of Genesis, through doubts and questions, God's promise is affirmed to Abraham and Sarah. 20 years after the initial promise, when Abraham is 100 years old, at last we find that the promise of God is fulfilled. In Genesis 21, we read that Sarah bore a son and they named him Isaac. And God speaks to Abraham and again says to him in verse 12, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Krish Kandir, in that book that Dave mentioned, Paradoxology, comments that Abraham and Sarah at this point are like the poster couple for the transforming power of God. He's taken them from absolutely nothing in many ways to being the parents of a future generation. It's a dream rags to riches plotline. Things are good. Abraham is living within this incredible promise from God. God has shown his power. He has come up with the goods at last. His people will be God's people. And Abraham has shown his faithfulness to God. But then the mood begins to change. The plot twists in quite a macabre manner. Because God tells Abraham this. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice upon one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God knows exactly what he's asking Abraham to do. Did you notice? He doesn't say, take Isaac to the land of Moriah. No, he says this, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, your beloved, the one of whom there is no other, the one of whom you've been waiting for for decades. There's no misunderstanding here. Take that gift that I have given you, that you have longed for, your only son. You see, God knew the immensity of the task that he was asking of Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Abraham, I'd just turn around to God and say, you must be kidding. There's absolutely no way. Or I might even question whether I've heard God right in the first place. And what does Abraham do? Abraham simply gets his servants, his son, he gets his stuff together, and he sets off. And this isn't a sort of 10-minute journey in a car where we can just go into autopilot going, la, 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 I'm going to get there, I'm going to do this. He went on a 45-mile journey on a donkey and on foot from Beersheba, where he was living, to Mount Moriah. And so Abraham would have had time to think. He would have time to question, to argue with God over what on earth he was being asked to do. 
So what is going on here? Is Abraham just a complete fool, willing to make a ridiculous and cruel sacrifice due to his blind, unquestioning faith in God? And what about God, to whom Abraham it seems to be so faithful? Is he just a cruel and jealous and greedy God who demands a ridiculous amount from those of us who are stupid enough to follow him? Well, the following events help us to understand a little bit more. Because when we see from the earlier chapters in Genesis that what God and Abraham have already been through together, when we understand their relationship, the knowledge and experience of each other they have, it all helps us, helps it make a little bit more sense. You see, Abraham's is not a blind faith. He makes an informed decision to do what God has asked him to do, based simply on what he knows of God from the past 20, 30, 40 years of that close relationship with God. Sometimes that is all we have, isn't it? When the tough times come, when our faith is tested, or some firebomb is thrown into our life or the lives of the people around us, when everything is stripped away, we simply have to hold on to what we know of God or our experience of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. When he feels far away, we remember that moment when he felt close. When that prayer just feels like it isn't being answered, We recall the answered prayer or the time when God spoke to us when we were reading our Bible or through somebody else to us. When we ask God, how can you let this happen? We need to remember that God in his very nature is love. And ultimately, God knows Abraham. He knows his faith and he knows how much he can take. He knows Abraham's past where he's been, his experience. He knows his present and he knows his future, but he always gives Abraham a choice. So remember, Abraham has had decades already of walking closely with God, of listening to him, of worshiping him. And we see some signs of who he knows God to be in the following verses. In verses four and five of chapter uh, 22, We read this. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you notice what Abraham says to his servants? Stay here, we will go and worship and then we will come back to you. God has asked Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him. And Abraham is on his way to the place of sacrifice, wood, fire, knife in hand. And yet he says this, we, that's me and Isaac, we will come back to you. Because running through Abraham's veins is his knowledge and experience of God's faithful promise to him. That God would give him a son and that through his son Isaac, Will his descendants be named? Isaac is essential to the fulfillment of God's promise. And time and again, Abraham has known that God is faithful, that his promises are to be trusted. 
And so Abraham and Isaac uh, begin to climb this mountain, taking the fire and the wood and the knife uh, for the offering. But there is no lamb. And so eventually, Isaac's curiosity gets the better of him. And he asks his dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answers confidently with these words from verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide a lamb. How does he know? How how can he be so sure? His faith simply flows from his knowledge and experience of God. And he knows that God is the Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Remember that God has promised Abraham that he would be the father of a chosen people. Nothing happened. Things were tough. No baby came. Sarah was barren. You know, bad things happened to Abraham and Sarah. And yet each time when the rubber hit the road, Abraham hung on to that promise of God for dear life. And now walking up that mountain, he had to just stop and remember those times when God was faithful. Those times when he'd heard God's voice so clearly. And God continued to walk with him and he continued to worship God through 20 years of probably saying day day after day, oh, for goodness sake, God, what is going on? I know you promised this, but what is going on? Why aren't you coming up with the goods? Why aren't you changing my situation? And then eventually the promise was fulfilled. Isaac was born. And now it would seem that God was about to take away the gift that he had given uh, Abraham. And yet even in that moment, walking up that mountain, Abraham knew more than anything that God is faithful. God will provide a lamb. God will provide a lamb. He's probably saying it to himself with every step he takes up that mountain to that place of sacrifice, God will provide a lamb. Don't we feel like that sometimes? We think, how long, Lord? How long can this continue? Or I can't take any more as we walk the dark night of the soul, as we struggle through life or perhaps feel tested, tested beyond our limits. And sometimes all we can do is hold on to what we know of God. He does love me. He is faithful. He has forgiven me. He has died and conquered death. He has promised me a life and a future. I'm saved. He will never leave me. He knows me. He has a plan. A few years ago, I met someone who told me how for 20 years uh, they'd been estranged from their son. And things have been really bad between them and their son to the point where the son wanted to get as far away from their father as possible, so moved to Australia. And so the dad decided to pray. He was a Christian. And for 20 years, he simply prayed that his son would come to know Jesus. That's all he prayed, day after day for 20 years. And then one day, completely out of the blue, they'd had no contact whatsoever, uh, he had a phone call from the son. And the son simply said, hi, it's me, like there hadn't been 20 years gap. Hi, it's me. I've become a Christian. I'm coming home. 
And I remember asking uh, the man how he kept praying for, for so long, for 20 years. And he simply said, I love my son. And I know that God loved my son. And I knew that God was faithful. And so through the pain, he prayed and he kept praying simply based on his knowledge and his experience of the love of the Father God. And so Abraham continues his journey. He knows that God is faithful. He knows that God is the Jehovah Jireh, the provider. And so when he reaches that place of sacrifice, he builds the altar and he binds Isaac. Goodness knows what Isaac was thinking at that point. And he takes out his knife. But then at the last moment, we read that God intervenes and there's a ram caught in a bush. And Abraham doesn't at this point lay down his life and enter knife and enter into conversation uh, with God, checking out what he's meant to do now in this sort of situation. He just knows God has fulfilled his promise. God is faithful. God has provided a lamb as a substitute sacrifice. But why is it that it feels like he was sometimes taken right to the edge before God intervenes like Abraham? Maybe it's about God stripping away our dependence on ourselves and our own abilities, our own gifts and our own resourcefulness. And by doing that, we're deepening in our faith, enabling us to trust more and more in God, allowing us to get to the heart of who God is. Many of you uh, will have heard of George Muller. Uh, He was a clergy uh, man in the 1800s based in Bristol. And Muller felt God calling him uh, to open orphanages in Bristol to provide for the many homeless and sick children in the city. He never asked for any money or any provisions for the homes that he ran. He simply ran these orphanages on the basis that God would provide because God was a provider God. God has spoken powerfully uh, to Muller through the words of Psalm 81 verse 10, which says this, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. I love that. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And there's a famous story of how uh, one day um, uh, the the children are gathered. It's 1837. And uh, the matron in the orphanage comes up to Muller and said, we have no food in this orphanage to give these children for breakfast. But he just says, bring the children in for breakfast, lay the tables. And so they all sat down as usual for breakfast But that morning, there was no food for the children. But nevertheless, Muller sat down with the children, uh, which had been laid out with the crockery and the cutlery, and he said his prayer confident that God would provide for their needs that day. And as they gave thanks uh, for the food that they were about to eat, they didn't have any, there was a knock at the door. And uh, the local baker was stood there with a basket of freshly baked bread. He explained uh, to Muller that God had woken up him up in the middle of the night and told him to go and bake bread for the orphans. And so Muller took the food. And as he left, uh, the milkman appeared. And the milkman's wheel had fallen off his cart just outside uh, the orphanage. And uh, he needed help to mend it. But he was concerned that if he went off to get help, somebody would steal the milk from his cart. So he said, well, I'm stood here. You need the milk probably. It's going to get stolen anyway. I'm not going to get to sell it. So you just might as well have it. George Miller was able to live life like this to be taken to the edge day after day because he knew the God whom he served. 
and he trusted that God is a provider. Even in his moments of desperation, he could look back at his past experiences and see that God had provided. And that gave him faith that God would provide now. And God provided for Abraham on that mountain. God provided a ram. No human sacrifice was needed. A lamb was enough. No human sacrifice was needed at that point. A lamb was enough. Thousands of years later, John was baptizing at the River Jordan. And he looks up and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb, Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And Jesus steps into the water for his own baptism. And in that moment, God affirms who Jesus is. This is my beloved son. Through Isaac, God promised a son to Abraham whose descendants will be great nation. But through Jesus, God sent his only son, the beloved son, to be the perfect sacrifice. And in Romans 8, 31 and 32, we're reminded that we can be confident in God because of Jesus. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So why is it that the God who needs nothing asks for everything? God is wholehearted and is generous in his love for us. He's given us everything in Christ Jesus. And when we meet and we know and experience this God, this love, this love that's so amazing and so divine that it demands our heart, our soul, our lives, and our all.